Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. It's another bank holiday uh, Monday here in England. And of course, I made the joke before, I'll say it again. The banks decide when you get to have holidays. Isn't that great? Uh, anyway, I'm Gabriel Marcotti. I thank you all for joining us. And I'm especially excited today because um, there are three people with me and they're all here in the studio and they all work for the Times. Um, so please welcome the excellent Alison Rudd, the excellent Matt Hughes, and, and yes, this joke is about to get very old, the only living Gearbrandt in captivity. Um, not many goals on Saturday, this weekend, but uh, it was massive. It was, you might call it a heavyweight weekend uh, in the Premier League on Sunday. So let's start with a final North London derby at White Hart Lane. Allison, Arsene Wenger puts out his, his back three again. But Spurs kind of ran right through it, right? Spurs go, no, 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 no. We're going to play back four, so there. Um, I'm, I've been surprised. I mean, we've praised Wenger for having the imagination to switch to a back three late in the season. Without actually training for it, preparing <laughs> for it, but having, having the people to do it, dropping Bellerin. Yeah, I was surprised he did it because prior to switching to a back three, when he's been asked about why haven't you thought about a back three, um, because of the success that uh, Chelsea and other teams have had with it. Wenger's argument was he felt the success Chelsea had, had with the back three was because it played into the hands of the talents of Matic and Kante and gave them the ability to control the game and the midfield and so on. And it wouldn't work unless you had players of that calibre. Arsenal patently do not have players of that calibre or even remotely similar. So it seems slightly strange you would copy the template when you've already said the template only works if you've got a certain type of player and he hasn't got that type of player so you go to a team that are rocking and you basically say please run all over us it is slightly strange but I, I can't diss it completely because it, up until this point it had worked for him because they're in a bit of a crisis and if they were believing that three at the back was giving them something that's all that matters isn't it I mean it kind of worked initially because Oxlade Chamberlain was very good as a right wing back, but I mean the sample size is too small to kind of judge really because they beat Middlesbrough, who were awful, then um, they beat City in the cup, and then they really fluked to win against Leicester. So I don't know, has it has it worked? I'm not, not sure. I wish you could see his face; he looks absolutely disgusted. It's the face of a man, it's the face of a man who's sick of watching and talking about Arsenal. I know, and I don't even. <laughs> support them or care about them. Imagine how the fans well, you know how the fans feel. I renew my pledge not to talk about Wenger's future or Good. Stan Kroenke. Good. I am curious about uh, about something, James. Um, it seemed to me like Spurs didn't really care. They didn't feel the need to, to, to match this. And, you know, even though in the first half they didn't score, I, I don't know, they, they, maybe I saw the game incorrectly, but I thought they always felt like they were going to win. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, um, one thing that I think is quite interesting about Spurs is their tactical flexibility. I mean, watching them against Palace, they changed formation a lot during the match. It's one thing to change formation from match to match, but to be so comfortable so to play... Does that make him a which is bad? No, I, I think it shows how well-drilled Spurs are, how well-drilled they are on the training ground, to have the comfort to do it actually within matches... I thought was impressive. Listen, I'm interested in one thing. Um, Kyle Walker's fit, right? 
He is fit. As far as we know, because he seems to come on and run really fast when he does. Um, are you surprised or, or interested in the fact that you know, he starts trippier, he, he's not, he doesn't seem to be automatic when, when a lot of people would have had him as, as one of the top English right-backs around? Yeah. Uh, well, the rumour is that um, they've fallen out. Um, it's hard Ooh, to believe. More, more. Spread rumors, spread rumors. <laughs> well, it's hard to believe that hard to believe that Pochettino falls out with anyone. Really, he's he's so he's so uh, paternalistic. They all seem to adore him, but he doesn't have favourites. He puts winning first, and he's <laughs> clearly put. He feels if Trippi's in slightly better form, or if it's the system better, or he's just just fresher, he's going to play him. Uh, after the cup final, Carl uh, Walker was um, uh, supposed to be annoyed they hadn't done anything wrong and yet hadn't been first choice and they were supposed to have had words and and now all it takes is something like that a little a little a little crack in the fortress at white hot lane and people think oh that's someone we can buy and therefore carl walker must be interested in, in leaving if he's going to be snubbed i mean if you just step back from it it's slightly pathetic to think that that is enough to make you want to leave spurs just a couple of being benched moments I would have thought Pochettino is perfectly capable of, of, of convincing him that he's still very important to the team. It's the most Premier League teams and you probably double your money if you um, leave Tottenham for a fellow top four club. It's interesting, there's definitely something going on there. The theory is that Walker is maybe the one player that Tottenham will sell because they've got Trippier who is a very credible alternative. But he's uh, so different. I mean, Trippier's not quick like Walker. He He's maybe slightly more technical, and I don't know. I, I, I don't see. I, I see acceleration, but he's, 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 he can still get forward and attack. He's not a sort of. But he does it based perhaps more on technique than athleticism. Than you know, relative to Walker, and defensively, maybe he relies a little more on. I don't think I just say outstanding defensively, but. I think Trippi's slightly better defensively. I would say Trippi's more measured. I would say sometimes Walker looks a bit. He's dashed there almost too quickly and doesn't quite know what to do, whereas Trippier thinks and does. Is, is it not also partly that kind of balancing act that you have to do when you're a manager in order to have really high-quality cover at certain positions? Because I think we're all agreed that, you know, Kieran Trippier, by the standards of reserve right-backs, is a very, very good no, reserve yeah, right-back. Yeah. And you're never going to retain a reserve right-back of that sort of quality if you don't actually give him a lot of games per season. It's a little bit like the rationale that Arsene Wenger uses with David Ospina when he plays him. It's right. different, but it's the same kind of... I, I, I think it's not new. Oh, I mean, last year, the, fullback, the four full-backs were rotated quite, quite a lot as well. I guess the difference is that Kurt Walker's missed the cup semi-final. Well, what I find interesting, and I don't think there is a correct answer to it, is do you want your backup or your alternative to have the same skill set and be a similar player to your, to your starter... Or do you want him to be different so that when he comes on, things change? So there's obviously pros and cons, mm. pros and cons to both. I mean, to me, they are just very different. I thought you'd want a different option, personally, but... Right, uh, some people might say that, but you can also make the point that, that having a different option means that the way somebody goes down to injury and your team's working great, then everybody else has to adjust because the guy who comes on is, is going to be different. I, I, mean, suppose, I suppose it comes down a little bit against that question of kind of flexibility versus rigidity. I mean, if you're, say, Chelsea, and you have for now at least, a very, very set way of playing, you're going to want your backups to be very, yeah. very similar and to be able to slot into that quite rigid You'd want system. to have a bad version of Diego Costa backing up Diego Costa Correct. not somebody who's entirely different. Talk about somebody who I think is way different and who I think is, is outstanding. 
That's Dele Alley. I know we sometimes get carried away, but I look at this, he's so young. Can you guys, you guys are no doubt, well, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody. When's the last time somebody his age was that good in the Premier League? Wayne Rooney. You have to go all the way back to Wayne Rooney. English, certainly. Um, Fabregas, I suppose. Fabregas was the other one I thought. Would, would have come slightly um, superseded Rooney and was even younger, wasn't he? He was 16, 17 when he was first playing for Arsenal. So yeah, it's it's over a decade. Any Dele Alley theories about why he's so good, why he was at MK Dons for so long and didn't get plucked away earlier by greedy academies? No, because no? he was playing and he... You know, I know, but he wasn't playing when he was 16 years old. He, he wasn't was, playing. <laughs> That's the point. Was he? Yeah, he was playing. Yeah. He was, he was he in his debut at 16. He's only 20 now, and he's been at Tottenham for That's two, two years. And he's played whatever 200 games for MK Dons. Yeah, he was playing very. He was playing every week in League One at age, age 17. So you know they got five million pounds, which now looks like a bargain, but they've got a big sell on as well. Liverpool and Newcastle both had chances, and it was quite funny. And Air was giving interviews in Liverpool last week he's about to leave Liverpool to go to um, 1860 Munich I think anyway he was asked about Ali and said at the time I didn't think he was worth the money which doesn't look like a very good judgement now I have to say from what I've been told he wasn't the only one who uh, who felt that I think there was some some division even at, even at Tottenham about whether whether he was worth it um, I'm looking around the room you guys don't all seem excited I mean if if I were English I'd be I'd be bouncing or or we've not been, you, because you're negative. We've been excited for two years. It's not news that Deli Alley's a good player, just because he scores in the North London derby. Player, but you know, I was at Wembley last week when he made... He, he, he needs to improve his decision-making off the ball. Some of his tackles are poor. You know, we don't want him... We don't want him poor scores on our hands. So while I think he's brilliant and a great player, he could get even better, you know. If he doesn't give away those three kicks last week, then maybe Spurs would be in the cup final. No. I think the, the, the amazing thing about Deli Alley is... is his productivity at such a young age is so outstanding. I mean, the number of goals that he, he scored is is quite remarkable, really. I think with young players, it's very easy often to get excited about sort of intangibles. But with Ali, he has he really has that output. For Ali to actually be producing already, I think, is what kind of puts him in another level of prospect. Not Put a different way, if his output fell 30%, you would still consider him one of the absolute greatest prospects in English game. And he's so flexible. No wonder Pochettino loves him because he can he can play almost anywhere. I imagine Nigel Pearson is more flexible than he is. Yes. Sorry, that was gratuitous. Sorry, Nigel. Um, interesting there. I think this is, I think we just we just nobody reacted to a quote from uh, from Matt Hughes a few minutes ago when he said we don't want another Paul Scholes on our hands. And I know what you mean. But it is the kind of thing that can come back to haunt you on social media, so I probably shouldn't be highlighting it by talking about it. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Even with the victory, though, uh, the gap remains four points because um, Chelsea went to Goodison Park and won 3-0. Now, I thought Everton were going to put up a much much bigger challenge uh, at home, and it took Chelsea a while to actually score, but they did create a number of chances before that. Um, did everything get this wrong, or or is it just a case that Chelsea just raised their game? I thought Chelsea played really well yesterday. Obviously, the goals were emphatic in the end, but they had a lot of chances before then. And for an away performance, it was very impressive. It was obviously, a lot of it was counter-attacking, but they were relentless with the way they um, poured forward. And I just thought, again, it showed what a really good... Uh, 
good team they are, and they've had an amazing week. Haven't they? They've you know beat Spurs at Wembley and then two Premier League games when they're under pressure against good teams. They're delivered, and um, we're seeing why why they'll be worthy champions. I think. Our colleague Duncan Castles pointed out after um, after United uh, beat Chelsea in uh, in the league that and, and Herrera sort of did that man marking job on um, Eden Hazard that you know other teams are going to find Conte out and uh, replicate that. Ronald Koeman certainly tried James, didn't he, um, by putting Gay on uh, on Hazard for much of the game. In his case, it didn't quite work. We spoke when Herrera did it about Herrera being quite an interesting choice because he has so much attacking responsibility to tie up a player like that you risk losing that although as it happened Herrera played exceptionally well and it worked but I think Gay would, would have been a more natural choice uh, it didn't quite work I, I think Gay's actually had a had an excellent season but I, I think it just it just shows the the class of of Hazard that he was able to to overcome that he was able to then kind of adapt his game slightly and play a very influential role in that in that match. I thought his hazard was very, very quiet and I thought in terms of pure man marking it probably worked, but the problem was that the rest of the Everton team didn't work hard to, to back that up. Well that's the problem, right? If you man mark somebody, um, then the guy just drags the defender out of the position. You have to make sure somebody goes and slots into that area that Gay would normally cover in front of the back four and it felt like that's actually where where Everton were particularly weak. Yeah, and, and Gay, it proves that Gay's been very important to to Everton having this amazing run at home. That he he covers, you know, he's like a he's like a he's like a version of Angola Kanti. And to take him out the game with giving him just one role, I don't know. It just made Everton look a little bit um, well. They were a little bit fr- they were a little bit dull and fragile. Dull and fragile is not what we expect from from Everton. I get people complaining to me on, on social media that, you know, why are you always talking about Lukaku and Barkley leaving? We have a billionaire owner now. It's not going to happen. You know, we're going to go and spend and be big and, and retain these guys. Matt, do you want to take this one? I think Barkley will stay. Um, I mean, the issue is whether Kuman actually really wants him to because he seems at best lukewarm. Tottenham like him, but they're not going to pay him more than hundred grand a week because that's what Harry Kane and Hugo Lloris get paid, so he's not going to go in right at the top of their pay scale. Um, he could earn a lot of money at Man City, but he'd probably be, you know, the next Jack Rodwell if he went there and didn't play. So I think he'll probably stay and eventually sign. And this sort of back and forth is just about money, really. Um, Lukaku, he looks like he wants to leave, and he probably will. The interesting thing is whether any of the real big clubs that want him, Chelsea, if they're willing to put the money down, and how determined Everton are to keep him I mean they they succeeded in keeping Stones for an extra year maybe Lukaku's had this is his extra year because obviously Chelsea were here for him last time and um, didn't pay the money so I'd probably suspect he'll end up at Chelsea for about £70 million You mentioned City there as a point and I'm going to put my own ignorance here there is a homegrown player requirement in the Premier League and in the the Champions League as well Um, and homegrown player doesn't just mean obviously homegrown by the club it also means association trained aren't City kind of in serious danger of just being able to register a teeny tiny squad or just a bunch of kids well yeah particularly if Joe Hart forward. leaving I mean they've got Delph I suppose yeah, but we're going to keep Delph around just because of his, for his passport or are they going to have to spend big and start looking at guys like Barkley and, and whatever just to 
but I think that's part of the reason they're looking at guys like um, Walker and Rose. Um, yeah, English players are sort of they have a dual purpose, almost. <laughs> they're probably going to have the most crucial summer of any club, I think. They've qualified for the Europa League now. Is that enough for Ronald Koeman to prove to the big clubs in, in Europe that he's he's worthy of the next step? But if he loses... Well, Luka, a bit mean towards Everton? No, what, what no, 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 because they're, they're, you know, the, 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 the debate about Lukaku has now shifted to poor Lukaku. He needs to leave Everton because the reason he doesn't score against the big teams, the reason he's a flat-track bully is, is because he's not surrounded by players who are good enough that when they're put under pressure they can still get him the ball to score. He gets very poor service in the big games because Everton just aren't good enough to compete with teams in the top six. That will rankle with Koeman. He, and, and how does he convince... The only way he can convince Lukaku, and I think I still think Lukaku is capable of being convinced by Koeman of this, that they do have money and they can buy in the players that are required. And then on the flip side... Lukaku probably thinking, well, hang on, if, if, if the big battle is whether you keep Barkley or not, evidence of this, this is not enough because Barkley is not in that, he's not that calibre of player. I'm sorry, he's not. There's a lot that's nice about him. It's great that he's an Everton youth player and it'd be nice for them to keep him. But if you look at, I mean, Kuman was very keen on Sigurdsson. I don't know if he still is. But, you know, if, if you, there's no comparison. You can't, you can't let, sentiment get in the way of buying really great players and if, if that's what it's boiling down to then if I was Lukaku I'd say this is a stupid debate I'm off I need you to talk bigger than whether you're keeping Barkley or not wow all this this negativity surrounding everything after what is I mean, they're kind of the best of the rest, right, James? I mean, uh, can, can you put a positive spin on Everton? I could definitely here? put a positive spin on Everton because uh, I don't know about Lukaku but I, I think Everton have done very well and I think Koeman in particular has done really well I mean as you say, they're the best of the rest. They're clear in seventh. And they've actually, albeit this result has done a bit of a blow, but they're actually putting a bit of pressure on the top six, looking as if they might even have a chance of sneaking in there. And you look at that team, you've got the likes of Holgate, uh, Davies and, and Calvert-Lewin, who are very, very young players. And when you consider that that was actually a knock on Koeman, that was something that people were saying to criticise Koeman, particularly at the start yeah. of the season, when Koeman was under a fair bit of pressure, when Everton you know, in sort of October, November time when Everton had a bit of a sticky run. I think they went to Southampton and lost and people were saying, oh, look, you know, Club Puella played a lot of young Southampton players in that game. And people were criticising Koeman and saying, you know, oh, yeah, you know, it was a, gr- it was a real grumble against Koeman at Southampton that he never gave young players a chance. And actually, he's given a lot of young players a chance this season. And I think they've actually had a very, very good season. All right, moving on to our debate. This week we're going to do things differently. There's just so much going on. So we're going to, we're going to have a whole bunch of little teeny, tiny, cute, little bite-sized mini debates. Uh, Joey Barton has been banned for 18 months for gambling on football. He made a statement saying that he has a problem. He's his compulsive behavior. And he also pointed out the hypocrisy uh, or what he, I don't know if he used the word hypocrisy, but the fact that you've got Premier League clubs that are owned by bookmakers. You've got professional gamblers owning clubs. Well, next year, a club in the Premier League. And so you're under so much pressure, basically, to go and bet and have a flutter, and it's part of the national culture. And he talked about how even as a kid they would bet on everything. I mean, is it a case of him somehow being let down? I mean, is there a parallel between this and and perhaps alcoholism and, and, and some of other substance abuse issues that footballers may face? I don't think it's hypocrisy at all. I think it's really 
clear that you can't bet on football if you're a footballer. End of conversation. Right. But he's an intelligent guy. He well, he's knows not that, that intelligent because he said, oh, "I've not, not never bet on a game I was involved in." And then we saw all the bets, and one of them was on him betting, betting on himself to score. Well, he's an he's, idiot. He bet on hundreds of games. Maybe he forgot that particular one. Well, I have, I have no sympathy for Joey Button whatsoever. He's been doing it for right. twelve years. The rules are clear. The FA warned him three years ago. Um, Right. And they've ended ended his career. In the sixty three page, I think it was sixty three page, um, written reasons from the FA, they discuss his gambling addiction, and they conclude with various expert witnesses and doctors and so on that yes, yes, he does have a problem with gambling, but they did not feel that the addiction and the problems were sufficiently overbearing for him to have a blind spot about which sports he was betting on. So it's not like he was so ill that he couldn't distinguish between betting on a football match and betting on a boxing match. See, I, so, I, so his his although his Joey Barton statement was was actually very persuasive and very well written. And yes, it does seem slightly odd to punish someone who gambles so heavily when gambling is so intrinsic to to the profitability of the game. There is an irony there, but it's completely not relevant to this case because he hasn't got an illness that means he has to bet on football right, well, that's I mean, not what gambling is into betting on football there's nothing that shows that the advertising and sponsorship of football shirts clubs has got him engaged in this activity he says he's been doing it since he was a child in um in liverpool so i mean it's, right, a, it's well, a deeper question about gambling culture it's not if, a football issue if this is the case though i mean this is where i, where I struggle with a little bit uh, and I appreciate that the FA are now experts and can decide who has a gambling compulsion and who just does it for whatever reason. But no, they're not experts. They've well, that's what Alison said. They said he doesn't have an illness. No, they've spoken no, they, to they, experts. They spoke to, to experts who then said, "Yes, he has. He has. He has a problem with gambling." But it's a psychiatrist. I mean, I it did. They did speak to psychiatrists, and who, they said, who, who "They are, said, in who, their opinion." Right. The, no, the, the addiction. Opinion. The addiction not, wasn't so yeah, no, compelling that he couldn't distinguish between a football match that was illegal for him under, under FA rules to gamble on and, and betting on the outcome of a hockey game. You and your experts, come on. Haven't we been through all this with Brexit? Um, what I struggle with a tiny bit here is we seem to have sympathy for footballers who are alcoholics, right? Because it's part of their culture and they grow up and it's a compulsion. As far as I can tell, Joey Barton didn't do this to make money because he wasn't gambling enormous amounts and he's a very wealthy man to begin with. He didn't do this to fix games or or whatever reason. Right? Those are complete. Those two issues are, are very very obvious. So to me, the only other reason you would, you know, you would consciously go and do something that's illegal in your chosen profession is if you've got some kind of problem, some kind of chemical imbalance in your well, brain, that, which yeah, is exactly the yeah, kind of thing that would yeah. lead you to bo- drink a bottle of Jack and Daniels before breakfast. And that's why they concluded the illness. That he has was not so overwhelming that he couldn't. That he, they he, they interviewed him and he made it, he said I understand the rules. But in the same way, an alcoholic would say I understand that 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 drinking twelve pints a night is bad for me, right? Sure, but you can have sympathy for him for his condition, addiction, whatever, and you can try and support him and help him through that without endorsing his, in football terms, illegal activity. If someone was addicted to drugs, no, you wouldn't... I don't think anybody would endorse it. I mean, I don't... So what is, why is there an issue with the ban? 
if someone was addicted to drugs, you would help them, but you wouldn't say carry on taking drugs and keep playing football if they were performance enhancing or if they were banned substances, you know? Right. So a lot of people, James, I think Sean Deitch came out and said, you know, Cantona got, uh, was it six months, nine months banned for, for, for what he did. Mm-hmm. And this guy gets 18 months for having a wee flutter, which is part of your culture. Mm. You grew up in this culture. You have a wee flutter from time to time, right? I literally never have a no. wee flutter. Okay. But, but um, uh, did you, do, you, do you see Deitch's argument? I, I, to- I totally see that argument. The relativism argument is kind of... A, I think you will always be able to find examples of where people have been punished leniently in the past and be able to kind of set it against this and say, oh, well, wasn't this actually worse? I do kind of have sympathy with the with the argument that he has an addiction, but I also think that it is one of those cases where the punishment to an extent does have to be it does have to send a message that the integrity of the game is paramount. And if you look at the bets that Joey Barton placed, to me by far the most serious one was the one that he placed in a game Manchester City against Fulham, where he laid Giorgio Samaras as first goal scorer. And he was playing in that match. You know, he was the dead ball striker. He was the free kick taker. Same reason that we have rules on insider trading in, in the stock market, right? Just the mere fact that you are a professional football player, if you are a serious gambler, and by that I mean a gambler takes it seriously, means that you've got access to information that other people in the market don't have, and that gives you an unfair edge. I mean, it's... I don't think there's an issue. I, I was just, just kind of more interested in, in, in the general idea that it seems that people have had more sympathy for well, for some of the other silly things he did earlier in his career, frankly, than, than they do for this, apart from Sean Dyche, but obviously that's his manager. The alternative would have been to say, look, the 18-month ban, which they FA says is the absolute minimum they could have applied because it's supposed to be, he would have got 90 months ban if they'd taken each Those count 90 months ban six six months per betting on your own or against your own team anyway um so they said it was the absolute minimum they could find but because it does effectively end his career because he's not you know, 18 right. months out he's, he's, he's too old isn't he to come back properly at, 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 a, at a senior significant level what they could have done is said 18 months is the minimum we can give him but we we do want to show that we take addiction seriously and because this would spell the end of his career we will commute it to say nine months and and we would he would have to undertake all these um programs and we would help make sure he keeps fit and we would like to see him come back and have a last hurrah as a player and then his his um appeal would have almost no basis at all and he would have to accept that because it is the end of his career I think you know the appeal thing will be will go on and on and on, and, and no one will really ever feel they have, and no one's ever learned a lesson from this. It's 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 an awkward thing because it's at the end of his career. I think I'll leave you with this thought though about gambling and whatnot. Um, many many years ago, I read Rio Ferdinand's autobiography, and in it he talked about how he liked to gamble. And one day he went and met with his bookie, and he had a good run or whatever, and he met his bookie in a car park, who basically gave him a bin liner filled with money. Now, I'm assuming that when you bet on Betfair, the Betfair man doesn't come by with a bin liner full of cash. So I don't even want to know why he was getting money in cash or, or whatever. This is in Rio's book, by the way. But we should be aware that you need to have very clear rules of this and very clear thinking. 
because if you if you do things incorrectly and if you don't treat the problem at source, if you don't educate people on the risk that, that James and Matt and Allison talked about, you're going to have people going who are addicted who will simply bet illegally. And then you're dealing with cash, you're dealing with money laundering, you're dealing with, with tax evasion, and you're dealing with far more sinister things because people who carry around bin liners full stuff with cash in car parks often, I'm guessing, as a population set, probably aren't people who play by the rules. Jose Mourinho, I know this is, this is, this is the only time, the only segment where we'll talk about it. And I had somebody go and say, oh, you're going to spend 15 minutes talking about it. We won't spend 15 minutes on it. He complained that it was inhuman for, stop laughing, for, for Manchester United to be forced to play nine games in the month of April. Um, on our show last night on ESPN, we actually ran through the teams that have played nine games this April, and it's like Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, Borussia Dortmund, Celta Vigo. I kind of see this as like the real problem here isn't the nine games in April. It's the fact that United didn't win all of them because Mourinho's hasn't played nine games in a month, but he's played eight games in a month plenty of times. And the real problem is that his best players are injured or unavailable, as are most of his defenders, not just the good ones, but the bad ones too. Um... Am I wrong here And that this is just kind of like, all right, let me give them something else to talk about so that we don't talk about, say, Rashford diving? Is that, I mean... <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, is he, he going really to really take, this, it, right? is he gonna take it, the fixture list to the Court of Human Rights? I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, ridiculous. I, th- I think there's a point about fixture congestion in general, but also United have been doing pretty, did pretty well in the month of April, right? The fixture list is daft, but it's not a new thing and it's not unique to Manchester United. I think the, um, the Di Matteo... Champions League winning season and they got to the cup final they may have played 10 games in April and they're and luckier than most teams they seem to have this, this this conveyor belt of replacements anybody want to endorse my plan to reduce to scrap the League Cup and reduce the Premier League to 16 teams or 18 if you must I'd scrap the League Cup yeah do you want to reduce the Premier League uh, well I thought the, the kind of the best idea which is not happening but the kind of five leagues of twenty, sort of the extra football league, because um, you know if if um, if Jose thinks the um, Premier League is inhuman, he should check out the Championship, hmm. which is um, yeah, but they you don't know, play barbaric. The, they don't play in the Europa League in the Champions League. No, but they play in other cups and they play an extra eight league games. But they'll get knocked out early in the because they're not as good, right? In the league, doesn't that balance out? Do they really? And I know they play forty-six league games, but does that not balance out a little bit? Um, it doesn't bit, but if if you get on any sort of cup run and have replays, then um, you've got big problems in the league, and you end up with extra games towards the end of the season. Um, and you've obviously generally got a far smaller squad and inferior players. So, unless you do what you propose and scrap the league cup, you could only ever like nip sort of tight. You could maybe say, oh, you know, scrap the two-legged semi of the league cup, but otherwise you would have to take quite a drastic measure i i just i I think with the the issue of fixture congestion and i'm going to bring in something completely outside football here go for it we've just had in american football the nfl draft where for people who don't know the worst team from the previous season gets the top pick of the best of the new intake of players and the second worst team gets the second pick and so forth. So it's kind of a way that the it's a very kind of artificial but effective way that the league has a kind of socialism. <laughs> Take from the rich and the hardworking of and equalizing the itself. Yes. And there is really there's practically nothing like that in 
English football or, or indeed European football. And almost the only way in which the one of the only sort of balancing factors in which teams suffer for being good is that they have to play a lot more fixtures. It's one of the only sort of balancing forces. So, for example, when Man United went to or played Swansea this weekend, they'd played something like 19 more games this season by virtue of being a better, more successful team who have progressed further. This is what they should do. They should have a rule that if in the first half of the season you beat your opponent by, let's say, three or more goals at home, two or more goals away, you don't have to play them in the return leg. They automatically get a defeat. That way you would free up fixture congestion considerably and you wouldn't be punishing the good teams by making them go all the way to the Europa League semifinals and the League Cup final and all this stuff, right? You're with me, right, Husey? Mm, it sounds like you just want to basically pay the uh, ICC Champions Cup <laughs> yeah, exactly, all season and exactly. get rid of uh, yes, I was, all the I was, teams. I was joking there. Right, moving on. Um, as you know, I don't talk about the lower leagues. I don't follow them. But I do follow people I like on Twitter, and I like Mr. James Masters, who former colleague, um, and a big Leighton Orient fan, who uh, unfortunately he's, uh, he's cursed by being a Leighton Orient fan. He tweeted a picture of his season ticket. He went to 15 home games this season um, and saw Leighton Orient lose 15 games. For those who don't know, Leighton Orient are owned by... Uh, an Italian man named Francesco Becchetti, who is a complete, I think, you won't mind me saying this, oddball. He decided that, like, because Albania is geographically close to Italy, he decided, I'm going to just give you a little Becchetti anecdote, because I think this kind of sums the guy up. He decided that he was going to go to Albania, where the cost of living is very low. He was going to open a TV channel in Albania and get it to broadcast to Italy, so he wouldn't need a license. And uh, he was going to basically take the formats of every, like, basically every successful Italian TV format, he was going to replicate it 100%, right down to identical sets, obviously different presenters and whatnot. Now, clearly there's issues of copyright and whatever, but hey, it's Albania. Who cares? Who's going to... People did sue it, but hey, never went anywhere, right? Um, nobody wants to get tangled into 10 years of, uh, of, of, of trials. Um, so this is the kind of stuff he does, and he buys Leighton Orient. He actually runs... He, he ran a reality TV show on uh, on his Albanian... Uh, Albanian-Italian television channel where people could go and um, he would take like sort of 10 aspiring footballers, put them in some ugly row house in East London and know and send them to train with Leighton Orient and then the best guy would go and win and it was supposed to be all exciting and of course nobody watched it except for Bikethi and his family. Um, but the bottom line is the club serious debts, they, they think narrowly avoided winding up order. The Leighton Orient fans protested in their league match against Colchester uh, which I believe they were losing at the time, uh, when five minutes from time, there was a peaceful pitch invasion. Personally, I, I don't condone violence of any kind. It was peaceful. I'm all for public disobedience, civil disobedience of this kind. So all these guys went on the pitch, expressed their, their displeasure. I think our headline in the paper was actually Football League deceives them because after they made their protest on the pitch, Football League like, all right, the match has been abandoned. Everybody go home. They took the nets down. They took the nets down, right? They pretend like everybody's gone. So then everybody leaves, streams out in, into East London. And then, like, what, was it an hour later? They 
tiptoed back in. They tiptoed back onto the pitch and played out the final five minutes. And they said no. And they played it on tippy toes as well, so no one would hear them. Now, I find this absolutely appalling. I mean, I really, uh, Football League justified it saying that, well, Colchester have a chance to reach the playoffs. We need to preserve the integrity of the game. There was no integrity to the game because Leighton Orient didn't go and try. Well, were they 3-0 down? 3-1. 3-1. He didn't go and try to win the game in the last five minutes. So you actually preserve the integrity of Diddley squat. Frankly, if you have a pitch invasion, uh, in, in normal countries, I don't know what the rule is here, you forfeit the game, right? So Leighton Orient had forfeited the game. It didn't matter. Going and playing the last five minutes... I think is appalling for denying them the right to those last five minutes, right, which they paid for and were entitled to go see. I hope James Masters does it. I hope James Masters goes there with his season ticket and says, you know what, those last five minutes, I paid for those, and you denied me that right. But the, the protesters didn't want the last five minutes. That was the point of their protest. They wanted to make headlines by making the match null and void. Right, but once you say the, the match. That's fine. But once you say the match is abandoned, James Masters goes home. He doesn't stick around, right? But the match wasn't abandoned. No, but before that, it reached that point. They'd asked them to clear the pitch, and they weren't right. Clearing well, just, the pitch. Just say the match is abandoned. Well, no, why should you let? Why should you abandon the game? You, I, I because that's what the rules say. There's a pitch invasion. You abandon the game. You don't go and rub the, the and, and and rub it in the faces of those fans who wanted to, who would have wanted to see them paid for those last five minutes, right? If you have to abandon the match because of safety concerns or or, or whatever else, you abandon the match. It's over. But then they should replay the next, you know, you don't behind need to replay. Well, I, you I, forfeit the game. Yeah, but then if you did that, then you'd be giving fans all over the country incentive to just run on whenever they wanted to. And you wouldn't, because if you do it, you get arrested. If you do it for no reason, you get arrested and you get in trouble. You really think fans are just going to start running into the game? This is what happens in, in most of the world, and I, I would assume is what happens here too. You forfeit the game. If there's a pitch invasion, the game can't continue, right? I can't recall the game ever being forfeited. I'm sure it happened in the 70s. Tony Evans were here. I'm sure he'd, he'd remember. <laughs> um, anybody want to stick out for Bicchetti? Oh, well, no. No? <laughs> That's not the point here, is it? Well, stick up for the Football League. Because someone could sue the Football League if they missed out on a playoff place and say They're not Colchester. going to miss out on the... Because they forfeited the game. Colchester get their three points. Yeah, but if you're not... Exactly. What if you're Colchester's nearest rival for those points and you miss out on the playoffs because Colchester get the three points you might say well if you if you you know if you if you if you you can't do this you can't you can't you've got to play things properly I think it's all nonsense and they set a really really bad precedent by being deceptive and I think our headline writer was correct in using the term deceive yeah, no, my initial reaction was that's mean Right, enough of this. How about some quick hits? Swansea go a goal down at the Theatre of Dreams, but they plug away and eventually equalize thanks to a Gilfie Sigurdsson free kick. Alison, you've been assigned this one because you're Gilfie's biggest fan at the Times. But also, do you want to explain the weird back and forth off the goal line from, from Herrera? Yeah, well, you know, Herrera knows his football, knows Gilfie Sigurdsson's going to score from that position, is capable of scoring from there. So he thinks, oh, I'll stand on the line, I'll make it difficult for him. But that, that means that um, Lorente can drift in and cause problems for De Gea. So De Gea says, no, 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 I don't like this. I don't like this. Go back to where you were the whole time. Iceman Gilfie looks at it like, like they're mice trying to flick his tail and he swats them aside and scores the perfect free kick. And I don't know if I am the biggest fan on the Times because Paul Hurst gave Gilfie 9 out of 10 in his ratings for that game. Ooh, you've never given Gilfie 10, have you? No. 
United take the lead in that game with a rather controversial penalty won by Marcus Rashford. Husey, was it his dive? Can we end this nonsense whereby only foreign players cheat? And given how much I think most neutrals love Marcus Rashford, is there a sort of a melancholy loss of innocence there that hmm. our golden boy is just like any other professional footballer? I'm not, I'm not sure. I think all footballers are the same. Most of them dive. It's just a question of how good they are at it. And it was it was an awful, it was an appalling dive. I was thinking about it. It was just so obvious. Um, so I can see why Paul Clement was annoyed. But equally, if it had been one of his players, he would have accepted it. So the whole thing is, um, frankly, absurd and hypocritical. All footballers cheat. All fans would probably accept their players cheating. And managers should stop learning about it. Welcome to the dark, cynical world of Matt Hughes. Burnley win their first away game of the season. Halt Crystal Palace's run and pretty much guarantee that they're going to be back next season. James, this is pretty huge, isn't it? Should we be making a bigger deal of, of Sean Dyche and his gravelly voice? Yeah, I think Sean Dyche's done, done well this season. I think if you look at Burnley's squad and I would say Bournemouth's squad as well, they're both squads where you would expect the teams to be right in the thick of a relegation scrap. They've done well to kind of stay out of it for the most part. So I think both those managers have done done well this season. Yeah, except one of them gets mentioned for the Arsenal job and the other one just gets made fun of for his voice. A late goal from Gabriel Jesus gives Manchester City the draw at Middlesbrough, but there was another highly controversial penalty awarded to Leroy Sané. Alison, you're the qualified ref. Your take? Oh, well, of all the um, controversial incidents over the weekend, it, this, was, this was the most dispiriting. And the way Sané sat there afterwards... He looked as guilty as anything. He knew he'd completely conned the referee. And I don't know, maybe referees just need to go on some specialist spot the cheat course because it's really hard. If someone's, as Matt said, if you're talented at cheating, you've got to learn how to spot it. Interestingly enough, there was a, a dive by Kevin Stroatman in the Rome Derby to win a penalty. And uh, it looks as if uh, that's going to be punished uh, retrospectively or it's going to be cited for retrospective punishment which in Italy you can do only in the most egregious, obvious, open and shut cases. I actually thought, haven't you may have your own thoughts on this, I think, I'm not saying it wasn't a dive, but I think dives of, of that nature where he sort of, he kind of jumped up, didn't he, and sort of, you know, leapt over the tackle as it were. You're about Strootman. The Strootman dive. They're almost more excusable than... You know, dives like the sort of, you know, the Rashford and Sane dive where you sort of lean into the player and see... The problem wasn't that he jumped up, is that he pretended he was hit when he landed back on the ground. Sure, but what I'm saying, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying he didn't dive, but the attacking player can actually argue, because, you know, the the leg did come kind of, you know, swinging in, that they're taking evasive action and that it's their right. You know, if they see a boot swinging yeah. in you know, that's better than somebody looking for a penalty that's better than somebody you know running, leaning, they're running towards yeah. exactly yeah. Just, hooking their foot in the, and sort of the, the problem with Strowman was that he then pretended he course, was hurt yeah. you know which <laughs> he wasn't um, Marco Silva just gets hotter and hotter as Hull continue to creep towards safety grabbing a draw at Southampton with some Eldon Jakubovic penalty saving heroics Husey they're up two on Swansea and six on Borough how do you see it you've already been all negative about Borough um, and more importantly, do you think he's going to stick around if they stay up? Um, Would you stick around? It depends what I was offered, I suppose. It's be really interesting one. depends what offers he gets. I can't see him getting another Premier League job 
yet, but he, he might he's sure he get offers from Europe, so it's kind of up to him, and it depends if Hull... Um, well, the, the ownership situation there is fluid for a start, and also it depends on if they really want to make a go of this and kick on and give him a budget. They've, if they stay up this year, it will be a miracle, and they will have got away with it, because um, this whole season has been a mess, and they'll be indebted to George Mendes, I suppose, for finding Marco Silva. You know, you wouldn't get the heck out of Dodge if you were Marco Silva, given the ownership situation. Well, I, I, regardless depend, what happens, it would depend on that, wouldn't it? I mean, it's still ultimately it's a Premier League job. If they're going to give him some money to spend and a big contract, then I would um, buy a nice house in sort of North Yorkshire and uh, stay there for the rest of my days. James Sunderland are down after ten seasons in the Premier League. Now you're young enough that you probably don't remember and can't imagine a Premier League without the Stadium of Light. Um, some of us are so old, we remember Roker Park. But anyway, what are your thoughts and feelings on this emotional day? Well, Come on, go all, go all calk it on us. I mean, it's been coming, hasn't it? I mean, we've all kind of sat here and said that they look doomed, and, and so it's turned out. I, I, I do feel in the case of Sunderland, when season after season, you just kind of scrape through by the skin of your teeth and like your kind of only goal is to avoid relegation you circle the drain enough times eventually you will you will go down it and I think even for clubs with the most meagre resources after they've you know if they come up after a few seasons you've got to start you know setting objectives a bit higher than simply just staying up and I think in Sunderland's case they're actually a relatively well-resourced club you know they've got a big stadium their sights should have been set a lot higher and James Gearbrandt calls the championship the sewer. That's effectively what he said. Seriously, we, we've had two major clickbait headlines thus far. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think that's as bad as we don't need another Paul Scholes. <laughs> but still. Gav, um, I've got a question for you. Go for it. Bayern are, once again, champions of Germany. Yawn, yawn. But was this season really a success for Ancelotti? Well, you can read my excellent column in the game on Monday and uh, and, and find out. Um, you can look at this in so many different ways. Uh, obviously, knocked out by Real Madrid in the Champions League quarterfinals, knocked out by um, Borussia Dortmund in the German Cup semis. But then again, the Borussia Dortmund game was a game they dominated and should have won. And the Real Madrid game had some rather dubious uh, officiating that went against them. Um, I think you have to judge beyond that. I think what's going to be really interesting is what happens next year. So Chabi Alonso and Philip Lahm are moving on. Uh, Frank Ribery's 34. Arjen Robbins 33. Uh, They've got a whole bunch of young players there. So the question is, can Ancelotti integrate them? Who do they sign? A lot of rumors about Alexis Sanchez being a target. Um, and can they can they kick on? But yeah, it's 14 league titles in 19 seasons for Bayern Munich. So in the last 20 years, nobody has managed Bayern Munich without winning the title, except for one man. Anybody want to guess who that was? Klinsy. There you go. Klinsy, yes, that's right. Former Tottenham legend. Jürgen Klinsmann. Please note the fact that we did not discuss HMRC and and image rights and um, Lee Charnley getting arrested because, well, we thought it would all bore you. My guests today have been uh, the excellent Matt Hughes, the excellent Alison Rudd, and the excellent James Gearbrandt. Remember, just £12 for a 12-week trial. If you want to subscribe to our newspaper, lots of good stuff in there and a neat app as well. Just search The Times online. Also, press that subscribe button on wherever you choose to download your podcast. And please leave us a review on iTunes uh, because it'll help other people find us. And then we'll grow and become a larger, happier family. 
Till next time, bye-bye. The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.